This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we're mixing up our format a bit. We have an extended conversation with Republican Representative Cynthia Thielen and Democratic Senator Laura Thielen, both who plan to step down later this year. But before we get to that interview, we get our reality check as we prepare for this legislative session with Honolulu Civil Beats political and opinion editor Chad Blair. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So what's the snapshot from where you sit? I wish I could just give a, a, a snippet or a, a soundbite. In fact, as you know, covering the legislature, there's going to be a million things. But one thing I'm hearing from our reporter, Blaze Level, who can't be on today because he's down at the Capitol covering a hearing, is that lawmakers are worried about the slowing economy. Even though low unemployment is very low, even though tourism is still steady, there are indications of a slowdown. We all know about the declining population numbers for the state. That means less tax revenue going forward. And of course, we know about forecast um, slowing down in the tourism and construction industry. So what a lot of lawmakers told Blaze is they're, they're worried about that. They want to somehow create more jobs. They want to stimulate the economy. You remember Governor David Ige just recently announced he wanted to put in, gosh, what was the figure? $1.4 billion uh, for infrastructure and construction. That's a way, of course, to stimulate the economy to to get people jobs. So that was the main theme I was hearing over and over um, and blaze as well through our reporting. It was funny because this weekend somebody was wringing their hands. They were worried about the uh, world tensions and uh, were fearful that the Japanese were going to stop coming to Hawaii if they thought something was amiss uh, on that front. I do believe there is a great uncertainty because of the overwhelming news dominance of the 2020 presidential election, particularly the uh, the omniscience, if you will, the omnipresence of President Trump and his Twitter feed, the concerns about Iran. Of course, the impeachment trial is set to start in the Senate. Uh, I believe there's a debate with the DNC tomorrow. The caucuses and primaries are coming up. So that, I think, in many ways is going to dominate a lot of things. As you know, generally speaking, Hawaii lawmakers don't usually pass landmark uh, legislation during an election year. It's just not very common, not to say that it doesn't ever happen, but there's a, a general cautiousness going into an election year. Yeah, and I, I think uh, people are um, looking at the bill that did not pass last year on raising the minimum wage and the concern about that, just, you know, if we are concerned about the economic um, outlook Right. I mean, you don't want to hurt businesses. That's the argument over and over. The chambers of commerce are arguing against that, or at least having a wage that is um, controllable. You know, having said that, $10.10 an hour is not a living wage. What does that amount to? About $21,000 a year or something. No one can live in that kind of money. There are many arguments pro and con on the minimum wage, but I do think there's broad agreement that it does need to increase from that 10-10 level. Is it going to be $17 an hour? I I don't think so. Probably $15 is a figure that I'm hearing. Do you also have a tax credit to help businesses? There's all sorts of things that are in consideration. But just quickly, that bill died last year because of legal disagreements, legal concerns uh, about the bill that they were working on. So they're going to have to work out those differences between the House and Senate. Right. And there was, you know, talk about the paid family leave program. And I think the concern by the uh Aloha United Way, the Alice Report, about, you know, shows showing how fragile a lot of our families uh, are when it comes to the uh, the pocketbook. I think there's, a, there, if that's the same report I'm thinking about, it's showing that half of all households in Hawaii, that if for some reason there was a family financial emergency, a medical or, or whatever the case might be, fully 50% of our households are vulnerable, really on the borderline, if you will, with poverty. That's how serious it is. And so if a family member gets sick, uh, an elder family member needs care, uh, not even an elder member, someone who has been incapacitated, how can you take time from work? And, and do you somehow help them financially, folks, to help take care of their own family? And what are you folks hearing about Mauna Kea and how we're going to deal with that? <laughs> I hear there will be a protest uh, at the Capitol on opening day Wednesday, more of a demonstration. I believe there's a, a voter drive uh, for democracy. I mean, that's one of the things about the Mauna Kea TMT movement is that it's inspired people to get involved with the process. But, yes, there will be some bills. It's still taking uh, time to form. I know that we're running out of time right now, but I do believe Mauna Kea management, what to do with OHA and what to do with Hawaiian homelands will be big issues this session. Okay. And we'll watch to see as the gun goes off on Wednesday. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Thanks so much, Chad. Sure. That was Chad Blair, political and opinion editor for the Honolulu Civil Beat. Check out their stories on civilbeat.org.
support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dr. David Hiranaka on Hawaii Island, dedicated to providing aesthetically tailored eyelid, facelift, and rhinoplasty surgery, online at a-new-face.com. They're said to be the only mother-daughter political duo in the whole country, and they hail from two different political parties. Both are trained as attorneys. Republican Cynthia Thielen has served for three decades, and her daughter Laura Thielen jumped into politics later in her career. Many would agree they are strong voices in our legislature, and their decision not to run again will be a loss for the state. We sat down with them last week, looking forward and back. One of the things I have been focused on is looking back 30 years ago and how I believe in the House the women have really gained their voice more through the years and certainly now. We unfortunately are still not at parity. We should have 26 out of the 51 members should be female and we aren't there. That's something that I'm I'm sorry to see. I'm trying thinking of the different reasons why that might happen. And it may be that like I felt 30 years ago, I was hesitant to run for office because I thought, what can I do? How can I participate? How can I give anything to the process? And is this something I really can do? I was running against a male Democrat incumbent who was a very conservative representative. I'm a very mainstream Republican in the sort of in the mold of Eisenhower, an Eisenhower Republican where you focus on the fiscal issues and you leave the personal issues to the individuals. So anyway, when I I thought, well, I'm an attorney. I've had experience. Let's go for it. And I did. But I realized that women may not realize that they do have everything that they need to run for office and that they should step up and that there will be other women that will reach out and help them to run for office. Because while we've gained our voice in the House and women are in some of the key positions at the House, we still have never had a female Speaker of the House. We had a Vice Speaker, Jackie Young, but not a Speaker, and we still aren't at parity. So while we've come a long way, we still have a long way to go. You know, this year we are going to lose your voice and then the voice of your daughter, Senator Laura Thielen. And and, uh, Senator, do you recall when you were thinking about running for office? Did your mother have any advice for you? You know, I actually had never intended on running for office. I really like managing programs and, you know, the departments, agencies. I really like that kind of creative and innovative process of implementing ideas. And what happened was I um, left DLNR when I was termed out, and the legislature passed this Public Land Development Corporation, which created a state agency that would have allowed the state to develop any land anywhere, and they wouldn't have to comply with any zoning laws, any land use laws, or any cultural protection laws or environmental. And so that made me so irritated that I decided to run. And so I came into office when I was in my early 50s. And I and I think that's one of the things that, you know, the message I would want to send out to people, and especially to women, you can run for office in the middle of your career. And I don't think we have enough people who do that, because people who do come in mid-career bring a lot of experience with them, a lot of practical understanding that's missing when you have other people who maybe their only experience is being an office manager for someone in office. They definitely have a lot of experience and understanding about how the legislature works or how the council works, but not necessarily the rest of the world. And so, you know, I I would give a shout out to people that, you know, it doesn't have to be forever. I'm leaving to go off to do something else myself. I don't want this to be my last job. But people can step in, provide public service for, you know, two, four, eight years, and then go back to other things. You're a farmer. And I think a lot of folks have felt that, you know, you've been a voice for farmers, for the folks that are in the agricultural industry? I'd say farmer is too generous a term for me. You know, so we live on one acre in the back of Waimanalo, and it's ag zone land. So we did put in a small, primarily lemon orchard. It was a little too wet. We lost all our avocados. But, you know, I'm a member of the Waimanalo Ag Association. I work with a lot of farmers. And the loss of our agricultural lands is a huge problem on Oahu. Oahu, most people don't know it, produces the vast majority of locally grown food. Part of it is because the 
farmers here can compete with mainland produce because they don't have to ship it neighbor island. So, you know, the loss of our ag lands here is going to be a a big problem if we don't really step up to protect them. Representative Thielen, I I think the last time I saw you out in the field was out in Waimanalo, and they were debuting the hemp plants. Yes. And I was just astounded at the growth of those plants. They were huge. Within 12 weeks. I mean, it's just amazing that they'll grow to maybe 10 feet in height or higher in 12 weeks. So it was very disappointing to me when the governor vetoed the hemp bill that was passed unanimously by the legislature. And unfortunately, I think the governor is um, feeling there would be a mixture with the high THC cannabis and hemp. Well, that's frankly, that's just not the case. So it was unfortunate that the governor just was, I feel, misadvised and uh, vetoed a bill because it set our farmers back, the ones that want to step forward and start growing hemp. It set them back a whole year. And Uh, you've been a a long uh, time advocate of hemp, you know, for using it for construction, uh, hempcrete, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, possibilities are there. Yes, absolutely. And that's what makes it so sad. If you build with hempcrete, you're carbon negative. Now, just think what that means. You're not carbon neutral. You're carbon negative. So you're actually helping the environment by building with hempcrete. It can be done. It's being done other places. Kentucky, a rather conservative state, uh, their farmers are growing close to 100,000 acres of hemp. In Hawaii, we barely had one. Now, this is crazy. I mean, it just is poor management, poor judgment. And of course, we will go again with another hemp bill to get things moving. So you're not giving up hope yet? No. (laughs) (laughs) And I know uh, one session you flew the flag that was made of hemp. It was made from hemp grown in Colorado, and it was woven in America, and then it flew over the United States Capitol and then started making its rounds to the different states, and we flew it in Hawaii. Thinking back with the history and Betsy Ross and and all of that, Senator Thielen, you had mentioned that this year marks a pretty significant anniversary uh, for women. Yes, in um, August of 2020, it'll have been 100 years since women in the United States earned the right to vote. And in Hawaii, there's an interesting twist because apparently even though Hawaii, the kingdom, was a monarchy, there was voting on limited matters there. And women who were citizens of the kingdom of Hawaii had the right to vote. So when Hawaii was taken over and became part of the United States, they lost that right to vote. And it wasn't until 100 years ago that women in the United States finally gained the right to vote. But that's just so interesting. I mean, our progressive history of the islands is just remarkable. You know, the Kingdom of Hawaii had a huge, a, a very high rate of literacy, a very high rate of participation. You know, it was it was very um, a model governance. And are we planning anything here in Hawaii to mark this anniversary? There's a number of things that have been planned and are being planned. And so I'm working with the Women's Legislative Caucus, and we're partnering with other organizations being led by the YWCA and Historic Hawaii Foundation to be coming up with different opportunities to be reaching out. The Attorney General's office has held out the offer to work with the legislature to have deputy attorney generals go to every district within the state to be talking to school groups. You know, so it would be really getting out to a lot of the younger women and speaking to them about the importance of voting. People tend to start voting in their 30s and 40s. At first, I thought it was a generational thing that younger generations just didn't vote. And as they got older, they wouldn't vote. But that's not true. And so I think if if younger people could start to pick up that habit earlier, they could have more impact on the progressive you know, values that they'd like to see with our state and more impact on the future. I mean, you, you look at issues on climate change. We're very good at aspirational laws. We are not very good at implementation. And so we need to start putting the money in, the attention in on making, you know, the the changes rather than just doing more studies or have more people, you know, go out there and talk about how bad it is. Got to make changes. It's so discouraging, I think, covering politics over the many decades, just to see the turnout sink down and down. And it's heartbreaking. It's like, you know, why can't we get people to vote 
to run for office. Definitely the running for office and getting women to recognize that they have as much, if not more, than the male that is stepping up to run for a seat. I would I would hope we would be able to see much more participation for women. And again, as Senator Laura Thielen, my daughter, said, that that can come in the middle of a career. What got you started? Uh, as an attorney, I had spent quite a bit of time suing the state successfully on environmental issues. And I thought, you know, there's probably got to be a better way <laughs> to do this. And maybe it's being in the decision-making body to take a look at what things really will help our environment and what things will harm it, and then be a part of that decision-making. So that's um, what started my whole idea to do it. And then again, I grappled with, okay, am I going to be able to do this? And that's the uh, lack of confidence that maybe is more prevalent with women than certainly than with men. Now, both of you ladies have made history, right? Because I, I think you're the first, is it mother-daughter duo of two parties? Is I don't that know right? if we're the first, but there was a couple of national legislative organizations that have magazines, and they contacted us one or two years ago, and they were doing stories on family members in legislatures, and we were the only mother-daughter. There was a couple brothers and father-son father, and father-daughter. And I think the only ones that are of separate different yes. parties. <laughs> My party affiliation comes from the Eisenhower years, and that's the Republican Party that I joined, that's the Republican Party I supported, I can't say the same thing for the present situation. So when people ask me, are you a Republican, I, I qualify it, and I say I'm an Eisenhower Republican. And he was a really excellent leader that worked very well in a bipartisan way. Six of his eight years, the Democratic Party was in charge of, the, of Congress, and yet President Eisenhower was able to get through the interstate highway system and a number of other bills and was very well respected. There wasn't this clash of egos or anything of that sort. And he, again, he focused on issues and fiscal matters, and he left the personal matters to the individuals. It, it is interesting to see what's happened to our country and the divisiveness with the parties. I know. Well, that that's um, fortunately my time in the legislature here. Um, I've worked with colleagues on a number of matters, and I think I've either sponsored or co-sponsored, well, what have several hundred bills that have made it into law. And it's not been by being <laughs> not my way or the highway or that kind of thing. That's not the way to do it. I focus on the issues, the climate change and the sea level rise. That's one of the things that is such a key issue now across our membership in the House. And it's something that we have to work together on to find solutions. That's another thing I'm going to be focusing on very much this coming session. That's not a partisan issue. That's a survival issue. Anything that you'll be focusing on this session? Well, as a co-convener of the Women's Caucus, I help with um, carrying the package of bills that the women members of the legislature, it's a, a bipartisan caucus, both House and Senate, and we vote on which bills to support. And so it'll be the 10 bills that have the, the most support from the members. And we have four co-conveners, uh, two in the Senate, two in the House. So I spend a lot of time on the women's caucus issues. I also spend a lot of time every session with general education. We'll have student groups that come through or you know, people will ask you to come to the classrooms to talk with them. And I think it's really important to be, you know, demystifying the legislature. We bring a lot of interns into my office, you know, so they have experience. They get trained on running things through the legislature. Because part of what I want to leave is more people that um, are not afraid to come down and to speak up. I know some people feel that, you know, why bother testifying because they won't listen. But I can tell you, you know, we, we get all the written testimony. We'll look through it. I rely on that so much for, you know, raising a red flag about something because we're having to vote on every bill that comes in there. So, you know, I have my areas of interest, and I'll be, you know, more knowledgeable there. But then I'm having to vote on, like, 
condominium law. And it's like, well, I, what do I know about condominium law? And so you really rely on people who come in to testify, people who email you, people who submit written testimony. And we just need more participation. I think there's a lack of trust from people that if they do weigh in, that they'll be considered. But you got to try. You know, I think just observing endless public hearings uh, over the decades, I still believe that I can watch the process and watch someone come up either before the city council or before the state legislature, and they testify, and you can see how their testimony uh, has moved lawmakers mm-hmm. who may have been staunchly on one side, but there's there's a connection, I think, that is made. Yeah, Hawaii is very much a person-to-person place. So you can throw up all the charts you want and all the data and things like that, but an individual coming to talk to legislators, that makes a huge impact. And one thing I would like to let the public know, there's at least one chair, maybe a few more, where they do not release the testimony until a half an hour before the hearing two of the committee members. So that means that to be prepared and go through the testimony, we have at the most a half an hour, sometimes not even that. And that's why it's terribly important when someone has spent the time wanting to give their input on a bill and they come up to the table and the chair says, well, we have your testimony. You don't need to read it again or talk about it. Don't follow that because you need to speak out. That committee chair, and I'm thinking of one in particular, has kept the members really from being able to look at the testimony in time. So the only chance is when that testifier comes up, don't be silent. Don't say I rest on my on my testimony. Go ahead and say what your position is. You know, the other thing people can do, too, is when you submit testimony on the legislative website, there's a a button where you can go and put your testimony in. You can also email every legislator, or you can email ones that are on that committee. And so the testimonies do, I think, 24 hours before the hearing. Then the staff is compiling it, and then they release it. And on the Senate side, it's the same. We, We get it just before the hearing, usually. So it's helpful. I tell people, just also send it. 24 hours early in an email to the legislators, because then everybody on the committee or all of us have a chance to read it. Now, see, I didn't realize that there was that going on yeah. behind the yeah. scenes. And see, some and of people it... People don't. Yeah. People don't. So they, they get sort of bamboozled, pardon me, an old-fashioned word, by the chair. And then they say, I'll rest on my testimony, and the members are clueless. Well, can you remember a time when someone's testimony might have changed your vote? Oh, a number of times. It has a great deal of impact when someone comes and is explaining why certain portions of a bill would be maybe very harmful to this sector. And then you're able to have the dialogue back and forth, which is an excellent way to do it. So I I always say, if you can, if you at all can, come in person and testify and don't just sit on your testimony be up there speaking it and continuing to explain your position. Absolutely, it has an impact. It may not be that it stopped a bill, but it may be that it changed its focus or removed a section that could have been harmful. So we rely upon the public vetting of legislation. And the public vetting, it really needs to be done in public there at the Capitol. For me, I came over to become a legislator after running the Department of Land and Natural Resources. And you know we have a sunshine law that requires decision makers when they get testimony and they're going to discuss a decision, they have to do that in public. But the legislature exempted itself. So the city councils have to apply by the public law. All of the agencies like DLNR, the Board of Water Supply, the Board of Agriculture, they all have to get testimony. And then the board members can't discuss what they're going to do prior to the hearing. They have to discuss it in the hearing. And so I always found that to be kind of a natural process. And I thought it was very good to have that discussion in the public so the public could understand how was their testimony being reviewed. We could call people back up, you know, to answer questions. You know, we may make adjustments and decisions because of that. But at the legislature, because it's exempted from the Sunshine Law, you'll often have a chair, you know, talk to the members and counted the votes for the bills before walking into the hearing. 
And I think that's what makes the testimony even more important at the legislature is because that's the opportunity to say, you know what, I, I didn't consider this. And so sometimes you're able to have good conversations with the chair, like you'll recess for decision making and we'll talk and we'll just say, you know, I don't feel good about this one section because of what's happening. Can we can we amend it? Can we come up with you know something that's different? And that is, again, where somebody who comes in to the legislature mid-career has a leg up, I think, on novices because they're not scared to have that conversation. They're not scared to raise a question or to, you know, bring forward an idea for consideration. A lot of other people, you know, there's this kind of push from leadership in the legislature is like, you know, shh, 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 shh. And we need more people that are willing to speak up. And it doesn't need to be rude or confrontational. These are legitimate questions that you have. And sometimes I'll ask a question and I'll get an answer and it's like, oh, okay, I didn't realize that. And that's fine. Then let's do it that way. Was there anything in your experience as the director of the Department of Land and Natural Resources that you found really helped you um, as a lawmaker? You know, both at DLNR and at the legislature, I've gotten a lot more appreciation for the variety of, of communities in Hawaii especially between Oahu and Neighbor Island and rural Oahu and Honolulu. You know, at DLNR, we would go around and do hearings at these various neighbor islands, or I would be, you know, there for the programs and talking with people. At the legislature, you're kind of relying on the neighbor island representatives to tell you what's going on or the written testimony that neighbor island people send in. We really need to have a Skype testimony so that people can testify from it's, it's just so unfair and even you know people that are they don't have a car and they live out in Waianae or Nanakuli you know how are they supposed to get into the legislature so we really need to hear that and then to be willing to adjust something because sometimes there's too much of this pressure that you know we're so close we're so close we just got to pass it and, and it's like you know we could adjust this it, it doesn't it's not hard to adjust and and I think for Hawaii for our future we have such limited land limited resources limited human resources natural resources we have to learn how to share how to compromise you know, because if it's if it's mine and I'm not going to share it, you know, and I'm using 80 percent, then 20 percent's not being used, and someone else, you know, who could use that is going to take another area, and then we then we've used up all of our space. So we have to find ways that we can all compromise. I think to move forward. Well, I can remember as a freshman legislator 30 years ago, I was told you weren't supposed to speak in the session while you were a newbie, while while you were just first elected. So don't stand up and debate or say anything. Well, I I didn't really follow that. And um, it was quite interesting because they never allowed debate on second reading. They would pass all the bills in the middle of the night and just move them to the next committee, and we wouldn't be doing it in public. So I challenged that, and I said, wait a minute, you have people here that would be just adamantly opposed to a measure, and yet the record is going to show they voted yes as the bill magically moves to the next committee in the middle of the night. So we changed that procedure. So there have been some improvements in the House side. It's taken some time. It's not perfect. The, what I just told you about, about the chair being able to keep the testimony under control till the last minute is just another measure of the, how a chair can control everything. And I think that needs to be changed. You both are advocates of transparency in government. Um, is there anything that you would like to see changed in the process? You know, I, I think we need to be more inclusive of public input and more transparent in how we do amendments to bill and move them forward. So, you know, there's a lot of legislators will point at the governor for having bad approval ratings or point at the president for bad approval ratings. But the reality under the Star Advertiser poll is we have the lowest approval ratings as a legislative body. And part of it is people just feel like we, you know, play this egg game or what, you know, the pee under the cup kind of thing and the gut and replace and the Frankenstein bills and all that kind of stuff. And legislators will give you, you know, 10 reasons why they can't change that, but they can't. And we put that requirement on every other decision-making body. 
So why not on ourselves? Why not have a modified sunshine law, maybe not a seven-day requirement, but, you know, a 24, 48-hour requirement so that people have a fair opportunity to see, you know, what are the proposed changes in a bill, and then they can weigh in on it. Because right now, it's just too much that, you know, this insider game and people have a lack of faith. And frankly, I think a lot of times we'll make bad decisions. We've passed bills where we've turned around and repealed them two years later because we realized it was a dumb idea. You know, it's just PLDC was one example. There was something under the health care law, you know, and, and the state lost millions and millions of dollars and we finally repealed it. And it was like, you know, these were bad ideas, but there were certain powerful people pushing them. You know, and there was very limited discussion. So a lot of times people were voting at the final rush on something where they didn't have the chance to look at the details. And if that had come out, we could have saved a lot of time and a lot of money. Representative, I anything? think of the van cam. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> Bad idea. And uh, it took another year to repeal it. And anything that you would like to see changed? I would like to see a change in how the committee chairs control what is under their jurisdiction. I don't think that's healthy for our state. I think that we need to have, again, much more openness. A committee chair can decide not to even hear a bill right there. I mean, it's like, no, I won't. And regardless of the public pressure that people really want to have that heard. So it's it's certainly not a perfect system, but the system becomes better when good people step forward and run for office. And don't just leave it to those that are already in there. But good people that are out there listening in the community, think of a time in your mid-career, I think, makes a lot of sense. Later career. I'm 86. And do it when you're in your 70s. Instead of retiring, become active and get into the legislature. And then make a difference. Bring your wisdom. And then I think the process improves. I think the legislature should pass a modified sunshine law. You know, the funny thing about our legislature, I didn't realize until I got elected, the House and the Senate are separate employers. So we have separate rules. We have separate sexual harassment policies. We have separate rules on, you know, how you can amend a bill or you can't. And it's really silly because the public comes in and they're, you know, testifying on the second floor in front of the Senate and then the fourth floor in front of the House and walking into a House member's office or a Senate member's office. And, you know, Congress has, even though they have limited ability to work together, um, do have a practice of having common policies and rules that they pass as law. So they can't just, you know, we're all going to ignore it. Um, And I don't see why the Hawaii state legislature can't kind of grow up have the leadership work together to make the body, you know, a better body that's more responsive to the public um, desires and how we do business. Because I think then that would increase the confidence in our body and it would increase the support for the laws that we do pass. I really wish we had a stronger two-party system. Well, I do too. I wish we had many more Eisenhower Republicans. It was a wonderful time. I went door to door for him, and I can remember that as a young person and very proud of him and very proud of what he did in his eight years in the Capitol. And I know uh, you have uh, made some powerful speeches on the floor uh, lamenting when some of your fellow Republicans switched parties uh, because you needed more Republicans and more women. I know. I know. That was... A very sad time. Well, Your thoughts, Senator Thielen? You know, I, I came of age, uh, obviously, later than my mom. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, I grew up in the 60s and 70s and played AYSO soccer and, you know, saw the difference at that point, a pretty stark difference between, you know, the opportunities for girls in school versus boys. You know, when we when we took shop class, we were given a box of leather scraps and we weren't allowed to use the uh, machines and things like that. And, you know, the soccer... It just wasn't the same thing as what the boys had. Um, And along came Patsy Mink and passed Title IX. My mom wasn't in office. I actually had no idea, you know, political parties. You're in high school. What do you know about that? But uh, my dad was a small business person. You know, my mom ended up being a small business person and have a couple brothers that way, too. And it just, um, you know, we had a lot of talks about current events and things. But to me, it was people like Patsy Mink that was really pushing for gender equality, you know, other types of racial equality and ethnic equality. And 
that was really moving. And so that's why I was drawn to the, the Democratic Party. But sadly, we still have a long way to go for girls and women. I mean, we just the legislature is making some inroads, but the gym facilities for girls is horrific. You know, you've got that story about the Campbell girls, you know, changing under the bleachers, you know, and meanwhile, the boys have a, a brand new locker room and it's it's rough. Equal pay is still a problem for every age group, every education level, every profession. Women are paid less than men. And then the, the harassment issues and, and there's the pushback is coming now. Like, you know, oh, you, you don't support the Aloha Kiss. Well, the people that are having to leave their positions because of harassment were not doing the Aloha Kiss. If anything, they were, you know, undermining the spirit of Aloha and what they were doing. And so, you know, we, we need to have support for these changes because to get the last you know, 20% of the way there is just going to take a lot of work. So any advice you might give, let's say, your daughter, who you know, <laughs> may or may not be interested in politics at this time? No, but neither of my daughters are at this point. <laughs> but then neither was I until I was in my 50s. You know, for a lot of women, it's a, it's a matter of do you want to put yourself out there? there? What I would say is there's no downside. Going up to knock on the first door when you're going door to door is really scary. <laughs> it's it's really scary. And probably even the second, third, and but by the time you get to the 10th door, you know, you've, you've got it down. And most people are really happy to see you. They want to make that personal connection. And if you win, you have an opportunity to represent your community, bring concerns forward, maybe not get 100% of what you want, but to, to shape things more that will serve your community. And if you lose that race, it doesn't mean you've lost because it'll open up other opportunities for you. So I think it's really worthwhile to try. I just had a funny visual of, you know, a newbie going up to the door and, you know, they've got those new devices now that the lights go on and takes your picture. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there could be a gold mine there. I don't know. It's funny because, you know, I go, I go door to door Waimanalo, you know, Coconut Grove and Kailua. It's very casual. And I was helping somebody else out in, you know, some other part of Oahu with new homes. And it's all closed. They have garage doors and they're closed. And I'm used to being able to walk up and kind of seeing, you know, what people have in their gardens. I always like talking to people about their gardens. And if you have to deal with a high rise, that's a whole other set of problems reaching out right. to the people in your district. Well, there, there are ways to do that. I have a couple of high rises and then also some other areas where it's a community association. If you know one person there, they'll hold a coffee for you. And then they put up flyers, and then people that are interested can come. There are a lot of different techniques, and there's always the good old-fashioned mailbox for those places that are hard to reach. But I always would choose—I I walked my district whether or not I had an opponent every election, and I always would choose what I felt was the most friendly neighborhood to start, and then— you know, deep breath and go up and <laughs> knock, knock, knock. And usually you go in the open garage and at the kitchen door because that's the door they use. Who uses their front door? So, yeah, yeah got to look for the slippers. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> go to the door with the slippers. Yeah. <laughs> and then just starting off. And it is it is so wonderful. And then people will see you in the market, uh, at the post office, wherever, and They'll come up and, well, let's continue that discussion on whatever. And it's, it's a wonderful way to be a community representative in our legislature. I just say, women, if you're listening to this, go take a look at yourself in the mirror and realize the strength you have and step forward and run for office. It will benefit all of us. It would be awesome into the 2020 election if we have an unprecedented number of women candidates. Yes. Um, but if for some reason you can't run, and I encourage people to run, help another woman. There's going to be other women running for office. So step forward and work on somebody's campaign. But it is important because there there is a difference. You you know, for instance, on the Senate, we only have seven women. We, we can't get our sexual harassment policy updated properly. You know, it's been sitting there in draft form. We're going on to the second year now. Wow. You know, so it's just, it's not, they have other priorities. 
So we need to make the changes and we need to get more women in office that will speak up and talk about these issues that are important so we can continue to make progress. Well, thank you both of you for uh, carving out time as this session uh, gets underway and good luck to you in whatever you decide to do. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for giving us this opportunity. We've been hearing from Senator Laura Thielen and Representative Cynthia Thielen, both who will be stepping away from elected office at the end of the year. What's good for your heart is also good for your brain. That's the basis of focusing on nutrition, exercise, community, and stress reduction to improve brain health. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with two experts on how lifestyle changes might help to prevent strokes and even dementia. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. This week's On the Media, tips and tricks for how to inoculate yourself against war propaganda. If you watch Fox News, you see what can be fairly characterized as war lust. I shouldn't even say Fox News alone because it does permeate everywhere. And you've really got to watch out for that. War themes and memes on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Tonight at 7, following The Body Show. As we continue this thread of women and family, we turn our attention to the Lurleen. It's the newest ship in the Matson fleet, and it's scheduled to make its maiden voyage to Hawaii this month, and it could be as early as this week. This past summer in San Diego, Matson christened the largest combination container roll-on, roll-off ship ever built in the United States. Hawaii's Constance Lau, who sits on the Matson's board of directors, had the honor of christening the Lurleen. For Matson, I christen the Lurleen. May Kahua bless this ship and all who sail on her. Lurleen is an iconic name in the shipping line's long history. It goes back to Captain William Matson's first ship built in 1887. The newest vessel will be the sixth Lurleen. We talked to Captain Matson's great granddaughter, who carries the name Lurleen. There are five Lurleens in Lurleen Menzies' family. Uh, she talked to us about the Matson Hawaii connection to the Filoli Estate and Gardens, which was her great-grandparents' home in Woodside, California. The property is now a public garden, and fun fact, it was used for the filming of Dynasty, the TV series as the Carrington Mansion. Lurleen Menzies was there in San Diego for that christening as the champagne bottle broke against the vessel's hull. It was really thrilling. I'd never been to a christening before and it was just so much fanfare and patriotism and uh, the community coming together to send off this big ship. It was really fun. It was a lot of fun. So tell us about some of the Matson family history because uh, we've just done a couple of stories about the gardens and the home. Our family has great connections to Hawaii and it starts back with my great-grandfather, Captain Matson, who started the sailing route trade between San Francisco and Hilo. And his first brigantine was the Lurleen. And on that ship, he met my great-grandmother, who was traveling over to be a teacher at one of the ranches over there in Hilo. Um, so they met in Hawaii. And then, as you know, with Captain Matson, you know, he started the Matson navigation line and the cargo travel from San Francisco to Hilo. And then you go on to my grandfather, William Roth, who was born in uh, Hawaii when it was a kingdom, the kingdom of Hawaii. That was in 1880. And he met my grandmother, Lurleen Matson Roth, in Hawaii. And they married. 
he then joined Matson Navigation Line and extended the Matson name as far as going into luxury ships, luxury liners. They were the white ships. And then he also built several hotels on Waikiki, one of them being the Royal Hawaiian, which really started the tourism in in Waikiki. So between the four of them, um, I think they spent half of their life in Hawaii. And when they weren't in Hawaii, they were always wanting to have links with Hawaii. And you do see that in the house in Filoli, which is they purchased that in 1937. This is William and Lurleen Roth. The, the thing that was lovely about it is that even though it was a large Georgian country house, I guess it's 36,000 square feet, it was not imposing. My grandmother and grandfather just made it very graceful and cheerful. And I'd have to say a lot of it was the influence of um, their life in Hawaii and what they brought into the house. The upstairs-downstairs aspect was very, very relevant. We as grandchildren really had the run of the house, and we went everywhere and loved to go into the help swing and go back there and play poker with them. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, go and sneak cookies in the kitchen from the wonderful Chinese cook that was there for years. So it was really, uh, it was very special. The things that I, my impressions, was really the the sounds of the songbirds. My grandmother had a rather large collection of rare birds from Africa. She had a a shama. She had songbirds. And she also had a minor bird that was in her upstairs bedroom with her, very close to her. And that bird, for instance, mimicked everything that my grandmother said, including whistles to the dogs and calling out to the kids and whatever. And so... There was a lot of a lot of trickery there, where there'd be this bird sounding just like my grandmother, yelling out commands. <laughs> Literally, really get over funny. here! <laughs> and people would come running. But the the thing that as you walk through the house was that there was a great abundance of flowers that she always arranged weekly, and they came out of her garden. But they also came out of her greenhouse because she loved cymbidiums and dendrobiums, orchids. So orchids and also carnations and roses were predominantly in the house. And she loved lays. And as you know, there's orchids and carnations. and, And the thing that was really interesting to me as a child is the carnations that she grew in the cut garden. They had a cinnamon scent to them. Normally when you purchase carnations, they have no smell at all. But when they're freshly cut, they have this delicious cinnamon scent to it, which I just love. Along with the, you know, the songbirds, the finches, there were birds in many rooms. So as you walked through the house, you had this tropical scent that you were in. It, it was lovely, really wonderful. The other thing that is in the back room where the family would gather in the lower back room study, there's, there's a number of things that do remind you of Hawaii. It's a wonderful pineapple print rug. And then she also has her Hawaiian calabash collection. There was a favorite, a turtle carved of Milo wood, And above the fireplace in that room, there is a a portrait painted of her commissioned by Lloyd Sexton. And he was a Hilo artist, uh, renowned for his Hawaiian landscapes. But this particular landscape was done in Ireland. But she wanted a Hawaiian artist to do that, that oil of her. That, That stands out in that room. The other thing in the vintage photos of the family in that room, there is a a picture of her wearing a lei on board a ship. And she kept this Hawaiian custom at Filoli too. And whenever 
there was an event in the house or a family gathering or a celebration, you always have those lays that are are making a mark on the celebration and making that day special. And the other thing is also the when we would have these beautiful parties that she'd always have a Hawaiian group of singers to perform. So I read somewhere that Hilo Hattie came to entertain. Yes, yes, a lot of Hawaiian touches, and a lot of times she'd end an evening with having them closing down an evening. Uh, so she never forgot her Hawaiian past, and many times, I guess, she sailed with her father along with her mother on passages where, at that time, he was just moving cargo back and forth, that being timber, coconuts, whatever, back and forth. So she she went to Hawaii many, many times. When I was there at the home at Filoli Gardens, they had uh, lots of the original mats and menus up in the kitchen. I know they're redoing the kitchen now. But what's your hope as far as showcasing those ties at, at the estate? That is something that, that I, I would love. I'd love to have a little bit of a continuity there in the house so that the visitors can understand the, the strong connection of Filoli and that family story of Filoli and Hawaii because it was really because of the successes of my great-grandfather and my grandfather that allowed the family to purchase Filoli in 1937. And, and we're very proud of that. Thank you for sharing your family stories with us. Oh, you're, you're more than welcome. And thank you for the opportunity. Since Lurleen Menzies' great-grandparents met on the first Lurleen, there have been many shipboard romances. We'll share one of those stories with Local Ties tomorrow. That's it for us. Up tomorrow, we talk about civic engagement as the legislative session is about to get underway. There's an app for that. Got Kako yet? Call our talk back line. Here's that number, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, or tweet us at HI Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.